it's entirely up to you. Start however you see fit, because we are actually rolling right now. Are we really? Yeah. Okay, so this episode, we are going to talk... Aren't you going to introduce yourself? (laughs) You're having a good week, aren't you? I've had like one sip of this, and it's like that much whiskey and that much seltzer, so that is like the kind of week that I've had. I'm keeping all of this in. (laughs) So you are listening to the Evil Eye podcast. (laughs) Don't laugh at me. What podcast? And who are you? <laughs> I'm going to say it in a second. Stop laughing. <laughs> Do you want to start? After you. <laughs> now I'm laughing. Okay. <laughs> this is going to be a disaster. Okay. You are listening to the Evil Eye Podcast, and I am your co-host, Sam Deegan. I am your other co-host, Robert Scavarla, and I am still laughing. And... this episode is going to be a little bit rough because it's been a long week it has but we are talking about one of our favorite people in existence yet again technically it's still october because it's still price-tober yes well it should really always be price-tober i mean i'm not going to argue with that point it's a valid point Yeah, so we meant, as I think you'll know if you listen to the last couple episodes, we meant to record one episode for every week of October, but sometimes life gets in the way, as it has really aggressively this week. I was talking to Liam from Cinepunks, and he was like, yeah, we were trying to get, uh, like, four weeks worth of episodes of Horror Business, and we got two. And I was like, well, we got two of these, and we only were aiming for a month as well. That's true, but this counts as the third episode. So Price-tober has not ended yet because it is still a Vincent Price tribute on this episode. Yes, and we are talking about Which two movies? of my favorite, although that's a little ridiculous because we could be talking about almost any Vincent Price movie and I would probably say that it's one of my favorites. They're all my favorites. Exactly, that's the problem. That's but, not true, but it is. Well, so one of the episodes that we talked about i think i said abominable dr fives is my favorite it's definitely like top three for me yeah it's like they're all my favorite but we didn't get to my favorite which is mask of the red death interesting i i do love that movie but so i am actually being honest this time around when i say we're talking about what was maybe my first favorite vincent price movie which is theater of blood and and we're talking about theater of blood today right yeah we're talking about that and don't make fun of me okay what what he's referring to right now is we went to record the abominable dr fibes episode but i (laughs) thought we were talking about theater of blood and i was really excited to talk about it and was completely unprepared to talk about fibes and i showed up with all my equipment and my notes and i was like you ready to do uh the dr fibes episode and she just gave me this look and i was like we're doing dr fibes right and she's like no we're doing theater of blood and madhouse which is the other movie we're covering in this episode. But I was like, no, because on our last episode, we told everybody we're doing uh, Dr. Fibes. And she just looked at me and I was like, okay, I'll come back in a week. <laughs> I'll come back after you've taken your Valium. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, we I could have tried to wing it. It's just I haven't seen either of these movies in years, so I definitely needed to rewatch them. Uh, yes, but we have now gotten to both of them, assuming that I don't get struck by lightning before this episode is over. But based on how this week is going, that might happen. It's possible. I mean, God above could come down and attack you because Lord knows he's a vengeful person. 
I mean, he's not a person, but he's he's a vengeful god. Yeah, I think you would really have to put person in like a lot of air quotes. He's an asshole. That's what he is. That's that's fair. Also, he doesn't exist. So, theater of blood. <laughs> he doesn't exist like Santa. <gasps> How dare you? Santa does exist. Santa, the Easter Bunny, Jesus Christ, God, and uh, so many other imaginary things out there. Santa is real, and I will fight you. We're we're gonna do only Christmas episodes for the next six months. So we do have a Christmas themed movie for December. More on that later. And I have a second one that I haven't told you about yet. Oh, okay. We'll go with that. So, Theater of Blood. Yes. Theater of Blood, I think. Well, first, we have to talk about the rules. Oh, so, yeah. I always forget we have rules for this podcast, even though that's how we set this up. Yes. Well, so what are the rules? Eventually, Sam? we're going to totally forget about the rules and just be done with them. I have forgotten about them, and that's why I always have you <laughs> say them, because okay. you have the notes. So... From our very first episode, we discovered that there are rules to being goth. What are they? There are three, right? Yes. Rule number one is to embrace the darkness. Very goth. Rule number two is to kill your fear. Eh. Yeah, that one is kind of bullshit. And rule number three is live for death. Which is very goth. Yes. And so we have to sort of establish, do theater of blood and madhouse meet these rules? But I mean, have we found a movie so far that isn't goth? Well, I feel like you could make a case that Theater of Blood is not remotely a goth movie. Although Madhouse, you could argue... They're both kind of like on the border. Okay, neither of them are goth movies. But because this is our (laughs) fucking podcast and we want to talk about Vincent Price, that's what we're doing. Well, I feel like everything we talk about, it always ends up being, yeah, it is. So at some point, I am going to pick like... A John Hughes movie and just be like, this is what we're doing. And just then, to find something like the least goth possible. Because when I think of John Hughes, I always think of like preppy characters. I hate Not John because Hughes. of all of the awful things that happen in his movies. I hate John Hughes. I mean, some of them are good. Like what? Planes, trains, and automobiles. That's a John Hughes movie? That is a John Hughes movie. Well, it's a great Thanksgiving movie. I guess I can't really argue with that one. And I mentioned it it's because not it goth, is. though. No, it's not. Although there, I think there is a goth band on the soundtrack. He would always work them in there for some reason. No one has to force me to sit through that. I happily will. Okay. But I feel like you could make a case that Ali Sheedy's character in Breakfast Club starts out as goth and then goes through the most horrible transformation in cinematic history. She falls in love with the jock. Which, that's not a real thing that happens. But it happened in Mirror Mirror. That's also not real. She didn't fall in love with him. She just wanted to bang him. Well, you know, there's, there's something in 80s and 90s movies about goth girls and jocks, which I think carried over into the 2000s hardcore scene. But in general, oh, it seems like it was a thing. Oh, God, that was like a knife to my heart. <laughs> I'm not saying I was a goth girl or a jock. I was clearly neither of these two okay, things. Okay, well, I was a goth girl. and I was as far from I a jock am. as you could get. So don't worry. <laughs> I won't make you sit through Breakfast Club. Thank you. Now now that we've established that important fact. Let's get to theater of blood. Yes. So one of the things that kind of makes me, I guess, a little bit sad is I feel like the double feature of theater of blood and madhouse. And so part of why we decided to put them together is because they come back to back 73 and 74. They're basically the same movie. 
Yes, and they follow that sort of Dr. Fibes formula of a character killing a number of people in sort of like a proto-slasher sense set to a specific formula. But not quite as campy as the uh, Fibes movies, which are pretty fucking out there. I mean, you could argue... So Madhouse is definitely more serious, but you could make a case for Theater of Blood as being pretty campy. I don't know if it was intentional. I think some of it is definitely comedic. Like the idea of Vincent Price just quoting... Shakespeare and killing people to Shakespeare like themed it's things. Amazing. It's amazing. It's basically the best idea ever. And it's funny, but I don't think it was supposed to be campy in the way that Fibes was like overly campy. Sure. Intentionally campy. I think it has campy moments, but it also has some really grisly moments. I mean, and that I think is why it's one of my favorite Price films because that balance is there. It's, I think I just, it's one of my favorite because it's a woke movie. It's about Don't a man start. killing defenders of the Western canon. Don't start. He may himself also like the Western canon, but he's taking them down a peg. Okay, well, the Western canon exists for a reason. I'm going to be that person right now. Wait, we're going in opposite directions here? <laughs> yep. Oh, wow. Here we go. Uh-oh. Yeah, I'm one of those I'm people. I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> I'm one of those people who takes Shakespeare very seriously as the foundation for modern English language literature. I'm not saying I uh, have a problem with them. I can get down to some Titus Andronicus. But Titus Andronicus is one of the His worst. lesser plays. Yes. But it ends with lo- it ends with someone baking their like enemy's children into a pie and My feeding them. My babies. That, that's yes. also one of the campiest scenes in Theater of Blood. And it's, it's my so favorite good. scene in Theater it's of Blood. so good. So basically, this actor, Edward Lionheart, who is convinced of his own brilliance. He's a Shakespearean actor, a, a stage actor. He is repeatedly ridiculed and put down by the the critic circle and they're a real thing that exists in the world in various countries and various major cities there's a new york critic circle this happens to be the london critic circle there's a twitter critic circle oh god no there's not it's called film twitter oh god i hate film twitter with a burning passion if only you could be like vincent price and get your revenge by murdering all of the critics I just want to delete all their accounts and block them. (laughs) There are. Okay. So there are critic circles around the world. He does not like these men because they clearly think he is a hammy actor. And one woman. And one woman. Yes. Okay. Like the movie came out in 1973. If you don't know the plot by now, I'm just going to spoil it. So if you've never seen this movie and you don't want to be surprised, better pause the episode and go watch it. So I will start by saying this is also a very socialist movie. Because it starts with a bunch of homeless men beating a landlord to death. Sure, but it's also a scene from Julius Caesar. I know. Which you could make a case that there are certain socialist qualities in more modern adaptations of Julius Caesar. Yes, wherein all landlords should die. Yeah, so basically the beginning of the movie, Edward Lionheart kills himself because he is... Well, it's not that he's killed himself yet. You don't know that, right? Yes, you do. It's the movie starts off. I don't remember this (laughs) at all. Nice of you to catch up here. (laughs) I don't remember this at all. So the first thing I remember is the scene with the homeless men attacking one of the critics. Because it's slowly. Oh, no, I get what you're saying. Because it's slowly revealed why he killed himself. Well, it's slowly. So it's revealed that an actor named Edward Lionheart is dead. Yes. And 
the critic circle, all the members of the critic circle are, and, and it is, literally follows the exact exact same formula as Abominable Dr. Fibes, where one by one, instead of doctors being murdered, it's theater critics being murdered. And instead of being murdered in accordance with the plagues of Egypt, they're murdered with this sort of arbitrary selection of she- of scenes from Shakespeare, which really annoys me that it doesn't go in chronological order, but that's just me being insane i don't think they were too concerned about chronology in this no and nor should they be it's just me being insane yeah but it's one of the best things about the film i think is if you've never seen shakespeare performed or any film adaptations it's kind of a good introduction to shakespeare it's like greatest (laughs) hits it's a weird way of introducing someone to shakespeare Sure. Watch Vincent Price. Well, it also, and one of the things I really love about it is it gives Vincent Price a chance to show that he is a legitimately good theater actor. Like his performances and some of these. So every scene that's taken from Shakespeare, there's a murder that is basically an adaptation of a scene from a Shakespeare play. Sometimes like uh, there's a scene that the, where they adapt Merchant of Venice and in, that's quite the scene well in the Merchant of <laughs> Venice scene there's no murder but in Edward Lionheart's version of Merchant of Venice there is a murder so it, and it's, it's more him dressing up like Shylock okay yeah that's a whole uh, that's a whole thing yes but so in every one of these Shakespearean sequences there's a murder and then there's a soliloquy from Vincent Price and they're all amazing Yes, Vincent Price gets to be his most Vincent Price in this movie. And I think for that reason, this is his favorite performance, if I remember right. It's his favorite film, though. I think so. One of the two. I forget which. Yeah, because he's able to... So he loved, if you are not familiar with this part of his career, he actually loved theater acting. And later in his life would do these sort of one-man shows. Like I think in one of our past episodes, I talked about how he had this amazing Oscar Wilde themed show where he basically for an hour would deliver these this kind of like unbroken monologue as Oscar Wilde Mm -hmm. and so this was a chance for him to really combine his love of horror movies which I think was real like he didn't look down on films ever unlike Christopher Lee bless him I love him so much but he definitely could be a bit of a grump he hated some of the things he had to to do but to be fair some of the things he had to do were not so good we we should at some point talk about the um what's the drunken rocky horror thing that he did yes uh the one our friend josh introduced to us yes if you google christopher lee let's drink it's gonna change your life it's I don't even know how to describe it. It's the 80s by way of Rocky Horror and science fiction and... And Alan Alda. And Alan Alda. No, Alan Arkin. Alan Arkin. Sorry, Alan Alda is a different Alan altogether. But back to Theater of Blood. So we begin with the death of Edward Lionheart. Sure. And so it's a very... It's exactly the same thing as Dr. Fibes, where you have all these people being murdered in these really specific and dramatic ways and the police are trying to figure out okay how how are these people connected here it's obvious because they're all members of the critic circle but they're trying to figure out well who would have a grudge against you and once they once they realize yes 
one, but once they realize that everyone is dying inspired by Shakespeare plays, they think, well, wait a minute. It could be Edward Lionheart, but he's dead. He killed himself. And that's because all Edward Lionheart would ever perform was Shakespeare. Yeah, which part of their criticism against him was that he needs to perform more things than Shakespeare. Which is but fair. No, it's not. I mean, if you're an actor, you should branch out. Have you... Okay, don't even get me going on an angry tirade right now, but there is so much range throughout Shakespeare's body of work that you could literally only perform Shakespeare and it's be very just limited. fine. Very limited. How dare you? First you insult Santa and now Shakespeare? I actually love Shakespeare, so... Well, calm down, I get then. the point about, like, if you want to be a good actor, you have to try different roles. Although in 70s England, I don't know if that was necessarily true. Sure it was. I mean, there's some really incredible theater happening in 70s England, but probably the critic circle was not watching a lot of it. They weren't watching experimental theater, like that group of critics. No. They would have been in, like, the underground press of that era. Sure. And... Really, what the movie kind of hammers home is that these are all extremely self-absorbed, unlikable people who are arbitrarily mean-spirited. One of my favorite lines um, in the beginning when they're talking about why they all dislike Edward Lionheart is uh, one of them says, you begin to resent an actor if you always have to give him bad notices, as if it's his fault. (laughs) I mean, I... They're like, we hate him because we hate him, and that's why we hate him. I mean, as a film critic... Oh, you're going to defend these people now? No, I think they're terrible. And much like... (laughs) Well, wait. much So one of the strengths... I think we're just going to argue about every issue over this episode. Probably. I'm sorry. I have not had a good week and I'm a little cantankerous. Uh, But one of the strengths... Well, I mean, everything about it is a strength. But as far as like a plot writing standpoint, one of the strengths of Dr. Fibes is Fibes is a villain who's murdering people who might not be guilty, but the script makes the characters that he's murdering so unlikable that you really are rooting for Fibes. And here it's not like they did anything horrible. They're very petty people. They didn't necessarily ruin his career. They did ruin his career. They for sure ruined his career. But when we get to the award scene, we're never really sure if he deserved it i mean there's a sense of entitlement with the uh lionheart character well we are all entitled little shits we're millennials right yeah i guess that's true so there's a sense of entitlement for lionheart throughout the film where you can kind of see the nasty edge to him that you don't necessarily get in fives fives isn't an entitled character he's a tragic character sure i think there's a distinction there well i think lionheart is tragic in the way that Falstaff is tragic bear with me eyebrow reference there well we're talking about Shakespeare I know I'm just I wasn't expecting you go in that direction (laughs) so I think a tragic character like Lear is a tragic character and very much so Lear is horrible Lear and I think the reference is meant to be actually this one but in theater blood Lionheart manipulates his daughter the best and she is so amazing so I love Diana Rigg and In the last episode, we talked, I think, very briefly about how some of the crew from the Avengers was hired to work on uh, the Fibes films. But Diana Rigg, who is a treasure. Her performance, especially uh, at the reveal scene at the end, is awesome. 
You well, you know what's happening the entire time, but it's just it's so great the way she good. reveals herself. Although at the, the end. first time I saw the movie, it took me like half the movie to put together what was going on. Oh, I mean, I didn't necessarily know it was her, and we'll get to what we're talking about later. But like, I knew there was something off about like that one character. Well, so I don't think we should give away exactly what it is, but I will say one of the great things about Lionheart is that. He sometimes is on screen as Lionheart, but mostly he's giving performances in every scene and he's heavily made up in costume. And so Edwina, the wonderful Diana Rigg, is also sometimes in costume and but we'll sometimes let you figure it's out obvious is. and sometimes it's not. And it's amazing. So the first death in the film is Julius Caesar. What's the yes. second? Uh, the second is from Trollus and Cressida, which... I think is one of the, his plays that people don't read as often, but it's, but that's how you know they knew the subject matter because they're throwing in the deep cuts. I so I really do like that they search for interesting death scenes that actually occur in Shakespeare, and then they have things like Merchant of Venice, which is the next one after Cymbeline, which is where he actually gets his heart cut out because he gets he his pound owes, of flesh. He owes a pound of flesh, and uh, Vincent Price's costume is something in that scene. Well, so I'm um, we don't have to go into it. <laughs> I mean, if you don't know anything about Merchant of Venice and you have never seen a film adaptation, Shylock, who is the villain, is sort of the worst Jewish stereotype in a really offensive way and Vincent Price fully If you've seen any weird like that. anti-Semitic cartoon in the last century, it's loosely based on that interpretation in some way. Yeah, and Merchant of Venice is hugely anti-Semitic. Right. Um, and that's not really what they're going for here, obviously, but it's a jarring thing that I think you, if you weren't familiar with Shakespeare and you're watching this, you're probably like, but then if you're not familiar with Shakespeare, why are you watching this? Well, I mean, I think there are probably a fair amount of people who like Shakespeare and who like Vincent Price and plenty of other things in contemporary culture who are not familiar with older Jewish stereotypes. Ah, I see what you're saying. Yeah, so that's sort of where I'm going with this. So yes, it's jarring the first time you see it. And I was reminded of it when I saw this because this is the first time in probably seven or eight years I've watched this movie. Oh, it's so good. No, yes, that scene is also... It's entertaining in the sense that like he gets his pound of flesh and the way he gets it. He but... does, but I think he also does a really good job and one of the things that makes merchant of venice great is like yes there are anti-semitic things in it but you understand why shylock has become so terrible it's basically he's forced to become terrible because society is terrible to him purely yes. because he's jewish there have definitely been readings of that especially in the last 50 years where people have you can't reclaim something like that obviously but they're yeah. able to contextualize it why that character ended up the way he did. And um, there's speeches in the play where he he's granted some human elements. Oh, and Vincent Price definitely delivers yes. those particular speeches. Absolutely. But the next one is one of my <laughs> personal favorites from Richard III, and he is really, really great as Richard III. But we are jumping past the award scene where we learn why... Edward Lionheart hates them so. Because they're bastards who gave him poor reviews over and over again, just to be vindictive. So he was Vincent Price. Um, Edward Lionheart in this movie was up for an award for Best Actor of the Year. He lost out to a new actor who I think had only been in one or two roles. 
So he goes to their posh party and starts like, you know, browbeating them. And then he walks out on the ledge while of the building. While dressed as fucking Dracula for the most part. While dressed as Dracula. <laughs> they're all kind of like laughing as he's very solemnly staring at them from the ledge. No one knows what's happening. And then he just dives the fuck off. Yeah, it's it's pretty dramatic. It's a weird scene. <laughs> it's it's a very strange scene. And so I don't think we've said yet, but this is directed by Douglas Hickox, who... What else did he do? He did not make a lot of films as a director. I think what he's most notable for is being assistant director on some earlier British horror like Fiend Without a Face and Haunted Strangler, both of which I adore, but they're the kind of campy late 50s... British horror where you have to enjoy kind of ridiculous sci-fi horror to like them. Yes. But so the thing about Theater of Blood that is not true of Dr. Fibes is it has some... And so Hickox also did a lot of television work. And at times it feels kind of like a television police procedural the way that some of it is shot. Like it does not have great cinematography or shot design but like it doesn't have to because it's vincent price fucking dressed up in shakespearean costume murdering people Well, one of the interesting things about the critic scene is that we discussed this in fives where the setup is like an early slasher film but here even more so because there's always that scene in uh slasher films in the beginning where you have the group of evil people whether it's high school students college students fraternity what have you they cause the death of a character and then they, they stand there kind of standing around and you realize like they're going to die. That scene is shoved into the middle of this movie, whereas you usually see it in slashers yes. much earlier in the film. And I don't know why I was drawing that parallel. Maybe plug it up. Plug it. It reminds me of the scene in Carrie in the oh, beginning. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. You I was thinking of you're like. You're with me when I just start chanting plug it up. <laughs> I don't know. I, I Well, I wasn't thinking of Carrie because I don't really think of it as a slasher, even if it was like a proto slasher. It's not, but I was I think... thinking of like Return to Horror High or something stupid like that, where you have like sure. characters unintentionally murdering someone in the beginning or um, one I watched recently, Pledge Night, which is not good, but funny. Yeah, but it does have that same sort. I mean, Carrie is definitely way more serious, but it has that sort of... That was definitely an influence on the slasher films with that setup. That, like, moment of group cruelty where... Yes, exactly. You later... And that's definitely... That's how you figure out who the, vic- who the victims are going to be in a slasher film. Yes. Whereas here we knew what they were, but we just didn't know why until we get to that scene. Exactly. It's just kind of jumbled out of order from what I'm used to in American films. But then we get to the Richard III scene. At, which I love, but so <laughs> it's it's an interesting death. I'll say that. Well, so it's one of the things that I think is so interesting about this movie is it goes back and forth between modern adaptations of Shakespeare and period adaptations of Shakespeare. So Julius Caesar is taken from very loosely taken from the play but set in modern day like as you said it's a bunch of bums killing a slumlord yes and the slumlord also happens to be one of the the critics yes but But that's how we learn that they're the critics like it's kind of like the setup sure but trillis and cressida cymbeline and merchant of venice are all in period costume as is richard the third but the next one is where th- <laughs> it's where things definitely go off the rails or things... go in the good direction, depending on how you want to look at the movie. Yes. It almost becomes more of an exploitation movie. Yes, very much so. Uh, it gets much more mean spirited. We'll say that. 
Yeah, I would say the last couple of scenes are very mean-spirited, and most of them are set in modern day. But please, describe the uh, Richard III death scene. Well, he dunks him in a vat of wine, which is And he drinks right. himself to death, basically. Yes. and he, well, he drowns in a yeah. vat of wine. Yes. Which is something that recurs throughout Vincent Price movies, because he's Alcoholism, in... Alcoholism, death by drowning? Drowning in a vat of wine, because oh, he's okay. in a couple of Shakespeare adaptations early in his career. Uh, but the Othello scene, <laughs> where he disguises himself <laughs> as a massage therapist. I was going to say Sergio Leone based on the sunglasses. <laughs> so in the Fibes episode, we talk about how there are a lot of things that don't make any logical sense. And some of them involve such advanced preparation that when you see the scene unfold, you're like, well, this is just ridiculous. This is one of those scenes. And this is definitely one of those scenes because it's like one of the critics is insanely jealous. He has this blonde wife with giant tits and he's very possessive of her. And so Vincent Price has been massaging this woman for like a year so Just he, he has this long-standing appointment every week as her massage therapist, but her husband doesn't know that. And so he manipulates the situation so that the husband thinks, oh, my wife isn't just getting a massage behind she's this closed door. She's getting a little door. something else. Yes, she's getting a little extra, a little happy ending with that massage. He loses his mind and then he kills her. The, the husband, not Vincent Price. No, yes, the husband kills the wife. It's supposed to be tragedy. This well, is the first time in the movie film. where... Yes, but this is the first time in the movie, too, where a uh, critic doesn't die. Yes, which is why it I think... He has a fate worse than death. Which is why I think it takes more of that turn toward, towards exploitation, because it is a really mean-spirited scene. It's like he yes. goads this man... Instead of just murdering this man and letting us all feel happy about it, no, he goads this man into murdering his innocent wife. And this is where the movie, yes, takes a dark turn, and you really think that, like, oh, even if maybe I felt some sympathy for Edwin Lionheart, I definitely don't now. Yeah, you're like, woo! But if you felt some sympathy for him, even up to that point, the next scene, where Vincent Price is a hippie hairdresser... Butch... It's all gone. A gay, it's my worst nightmare. A gay hippie hairdresser. Is he supposed to be gay? Yes. Okay. I wasn't sure yes, what was going on in that scene. I just saw a hippie hairdresser and I'm he like, He has I'm a out. giant afro. Well, so that it's was part amazing. of my problem. <laughs> it was, it was very, like that whole scene is very confusing. It's the campiest moment in the movie. And also this is sort of what I was talking about earlier when I said some scenes are direct adaptations from Shakespeare and some are only very <laughs> loosely connected like Julius what Caesar. What was this based This out is of? Henry the Sixth, Part One. So <laughs> I was so confused by what was on the screen. I'm just like, okay, let's so go with it. I love the Henry plays, but they're very serious. And one of the characters in Henry the Sixth is Joan of Arc. And Joan of Arc, in you know, leading the French armies against the English, is declared to be a witch and burned at the stake and so instead of actually burning someone at the stake they electrocute the female critic who's going in to get her hair done but it like it makes more sense when you see the film because they it sort of looks like she's being burned at the stake because she's got like a a perm thing helmet that I goes was over her head too distracted by vincent price's afro it's insane 
It's like, I, I don't want to say it's a thing of beauty, but it's like it's a thing. It's the thing. It's pretty majestic. Yes. It's like horrible, but it's majestic. But then we follow that with my favorite scene with in the, the movie. With the greatest scene in the, the whole movie. The best scene in the movie based on my fave, Titus Andronicus, because one of... So all of the characters in this movie, the critics, have their own defining little traits. And obviously in a movie like this, <laughs> there has to be a fat critic. Because, of course. Because a fat critic who is very sort of prissy. Yes. So they do the thing that you would always do to a, um, an obese character in a movie, and they feed him to death. Well, he he wins a contest with the BBC or yes. a local TV channel where they want to make over his home, something to that effect. Yeah, or he has the greatest kitchen in England, so he's won this feast. Unfortunately, he also loves his two little dogs, his babies, his which is why I babies. said this earlier. The way he says "my babies," and he says it like thirty times in the film. All you doggo lovers, if you don't know where this is going, I'm gonna say close your ears right now and come back in like thirty seconds, because baked in a pie, baked in a pie. <laughs> it's great though. It is amazing the shock of the character when he finds out is glorious it's also kind of gross well it's gross because then they literally this, shove like yeah. a what is it like the needle thing that the chefs use to yeah it's, so out it's it's sauce. a it's a pastry bag pastry bag and they just shove it in his mouth vincent price shoves it in his mouth yeah at first they make him take bites of this pie and make him eat his own dogs and then because he's chewing too slowly the pastry bag gets rammed down his throat <laughs> So it's the funniest death. It's also kind of the most disturbing based on everything that's happening. And it's really, really gross. Yeah. It, this is way more of a disturbing movie than either Dr. Fibes film. Oh, I, I don't disagree with that. The tone of this movie is very mean. Even more so than Madhouse later when we talk about it. Oh, yeah. Way... That has like its moments. But like the deaths in this movie, like they're gleefully mean spirited in a way that like even some slasher films of the 80s don't approach. Yeah, it's that. And that's why I say it sort of has times where it approaches being an exploitation film. Yes. And it's weird to think of Vincent Price in an exploitation film, because when I think of exploitation film, I think of like Eden Alive or like one of the really like mean ones from that era. Whereas, yes, Witchfinder General could qualify as one. Totally. Although I tend to think it's I don't want to say it's elevated exploitation. Don't make me slap you. But it's (laughs) because I'll do it. It's one of the best exploitation films of that era, but it's also, it doesn't really feel like it because it's dark in parts, but like when you see the witches burning, it isn't the same to me as when I'm watching something from the seventies, a decade later where you're seeing like gore galore. Sure. But to me, that is the defining character of those exploitation of exploitation movies, regardless of whether they're horror movies or whether they're gory or whether they have lots of sex and nudity is they're extremely mean spirited and unpleasant. Yes. And that's definitely unpleasant. But again, when I think of it, even from that era, I would be thinking of like Herschel Gordon Lewis. It's like classy unpleasant. Yeah. I'd be thinking of like sexploitation films from that era, um, like the Swedish ones or. Or like Ilsa. Or Ilsa. Well, when I think of the Swedish ones, I think of like kind of the sex education films that they were doing, masquerading. Oh, they were yeah, basically yeah. porn masquerading as education films. Sure, um, or I think of, of like Herschel Gordon Lewis or something like but that. But those from that are era. pretty tame, and they're not really mean spirited. No, Whereas but Herschel I mean like Gordon Lewis certainly. Is. Part of the appeal was you're getting to see everything. Sure. And so when I think of Witchfinder General, it's less that because I think 
The other thing is like a lot of exploitation films, they're not conventionally good films. They're, they're, there's things about them that are good that you can respect, but you like them for a different reason. It's like the distinction between highbrow and lowbrow. I don't know if I agree with you here, but... Well, so I think when I think of exploitation, and it's not like putting any value judgment on it, it's simply saying... Sounds like a value judgment. No. So the reason I like a lot of exploitation is because it's unabashedly lowbrow. It's purposely like thumbing its nose at like good taste. So the things I go to for an exploitation film, I don't necessarily think of immediately when I'm watching Witchfinder General because all of the performances are legitimately good. It's a conventionally good film, even if it wasn't recognized as such in the era. The script is great. Everything about the movie is just really, really good. That's how he gets you. Who? Michael Reeves, I think. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, everything about that movie is amazing. It's like, oh, look at this sort of restrained period film you're watching. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> it does get wild once you get Just to the burnings. Just kidding. And uh, Vincent Price is very mean in that movie. It makes me a little bit sad. Like I, can't... We should have done Witchfinder General. No, we shouldn't have. I can't really watch Witchfinder General a lot because it Why? upsets me too much that Vincent Price is so horrible. Oh, I love it. It's one of my favorite performances from him. It's he, I love his very mean, evil roles. That's why I like Mask of the Red Death. So he's great in Witchfinder General. I'm not arguing that. I think he, he knew it was one of his best performances, even though he fucking hated Michael Reeves during <laughs> filming. He like later on said, yes, he knew what he was doing and he got a great performance out of me. But Speaking of Michael Reeves, we should uh, plug the Diabolique documentary. Oh, yes. Well, do you want to talk about that? I don't know that it's available yet, though. But it's upcoming, isn't it? Yes. So it looks at his career and, I mean, most people just know him for Witchfinder General, but he actually made a handful of films before dying very young, sort of Heath Ledger style, basically being sick or, like, having a cold and just taking an inappropriate mix of medication. So it was... People talk about how he died from a drug overdose, but like it was an accidental death. Yes. And so he died young. He only has this handful of films that are very promising. And so this is the first full documentary to look at at him. And, and the we, idea when it's coming along? No, 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 no. Idea oh, I know whatsoever. they've announced it already. I didn't know much else beyond oh, that. Oh, yeah. So I don't know when it's getting an official release but we will definitely talk about it again and maybe when it gets an official release we should do uh one of his italian gothic films because those totally qualify as gothic goth gothic i I wonder how that works (laughs) so after the death of um our large critic friend via titus andronicus we then learn who one of the characters is that we're not going to reveal, but this is what leads us to the end of the film because he has his last critic enemy who kind of turns out to be the smartest of them because he understands what's happening. Yeah, he's this critic named Devlin who's kind of the unofficial leader of the critic circle because he's... Like, I fucking hate this character. Really? Why? He just is so smarmy and self-important, and he's so smug. The look on his face, you're like, Vincent Price, please kill this man. And so he's saved for last, and there's a ridiculous scene, which is loosely taken from Romeo and Juliet, where they duel, but they duel on trampolines and wearing fencing outfits, and you need to see it to really... (laughs) And Vincent Price is quite the fencer. He is. I mean, I think he actually knew how to fence. Well, it comes across in the movie. 
I, he's amazing. He, but then we get to the end of the film. Do. He's in a theater with his um, army of oh, his army of homeless tramps. people. Which, so I don't think we've actually talked about that much. But so the opening scene is partially great. The first kill because he delivers um, a monologue from Shakespeare to a theater full of vagrants, basically. Yeah, so you learn that when he killed himself by jumping into the river... He became the king of the homeless. Yeah, he's rescued by these homeless alcoholics. As often happens when you (laughs) attempt to kill yourself. Like one does. And so they become his sort of... Army? Army of non-speaking... Yeah, it's His army of darkness? It's not very politically correct. What? The, the way that he treats these people and the fact that they're like all I don't think anything about this movie is politically DTs, correct, to no. be quite honest. Um, many of the things we have already discussed about the character and the kills, especially. Oh, for sure. I mean, I guess Vincent Price is canceled. Vincent Price will never be canceled. <laughs> <laughs> so we get to the end of the film and um, the last attempt just so I can actually get one of these right, I was going to say, it's the blinding from King Lear. Yes. But the blinding in this sense is a a, a very Fibesian, Whoop Goldberg-style trap where he like straps a man into a seat and has two knives at the end of a rolly system. Two burning knives. Two burning knives, and they're slowly moving towards the man's eyes. Which seems incredibly unpleasant but i i do think also needlessly complicated just stab the man in the eyes it's it's very bond villain use your thumbs and gouge <laughs> but that's, get in there dig in that's not as theatrical and i guess edward lionheart is theatrical he's the most theatrical but i also do think that that sort of lear parallel is intentional where you yes. have these characters who are very tragic but Shakespeare has a lot of those characters. I mean, he does. Hamlet's undoing is entirely his own fault. Same thing with Macbeth. Same thing with Lear. Same thing with a number of the characters in Titus Andronicus. And to a certain extent, well, definitely same thing with Othello. It's Yes. So I'm not going to disagree with you on any of these. You're smarter than me. I'm not smarter than you. I just am a Shakespeare nerd. You are. <laughs> <laughs> but... I think my favorite thing, though, is at the end of the movie, Devlin, after... Um, so, the ending of the film, to spoil it, is Fibes goes down and... Not Fibes. It is basically Fibes. It but is. It's, it's Edward Lionheart. He's in the theater and it goes down in flames. But even at the end, Devlin can't give him credit. credit and he's like, the performance was way over the top. I know. And you just wish that somebody would come along and just chop Devlin's head <laughs> off. Unfortunately, we don't get a sequel to this movie. Now. But we sort of do because Madhouse is kind of that. Oh, and something that I forgot to say earlier. Uh, so the one female critic who gets killed Henry the Sixth style is a lady named Coral Brown, who met Vincent Price for the first time on this film. Oh yes, and they, they got hooked up by one Diana of, Rigg. Yes, and they fell in love and got married, and she was his last wife. Yes. So wait, did Vincent Price cheat on his then wife? I mean, are we going to judge Vincent Price? I'm not. I'm just like, man, he had some game. Yeah, I speculate he may have had some game. Not just with the ladies. No, his daughter has said he was bisexual. Which is, so I've heard the same thing about Coral Brown. 
that they and wasn't both there, were bisexual was, and got married and had sort of an open marriage. What was that documentary that was out a few months ago? Um, oh, it wasn't. It talked about a bunch of famous actors in Hollywood who biopic about and someone in a Hollywood. Biopic. <sighs> It was it was a biopic about um, someone who was involved in Hollywood in about the magical fifties and sixties, and yeah, it was basically like he was. I don't believe he was a hustler, but he worked in something like that. In James, that are you talking about James Dean? No, um, it wasn't. I forget what it is, and maybe I'll just edit it in over the top of this. But basically, he was saying Vincent Price was one of the customers when he was not a hustler, but a hustler. Sure, and. What frustrates me, and I'm biased because I myself am bisexual. Biased. But, yeah, thank you. I, I felt like I couldn't make that pun twice in five minutes. I thought that's what you were going for, but. No, I'm I'm biased because. It, Continue on. Because it's something I think about. I think more than straight people do or more than homosexual people do who are not bisexual. But I think with men in particular, there's this sense that you know no and i've heard people say this that i've heard them say it about women too but more so about men that no men are actually bisexual and oh i mean yeah that's uh, a common myth yeah men pretending to be bisexual are really just hiding that they're gay and which is super offensive but it is i think as some of these more open histories of hollywood and and actors in particular emerge you start to see this pattern like, no, they really were bisexual. Like, yeah, totally. sorry, everyone. <laughs> well, that took an interesting turn. Well, we haven't talked about that yet on, on this podcast. <laughs> it was on a dark street in a respectable suburban neighborhood that the thing first made its presence known, a murdering creature of Satan that hacked away parts of the body to build another with the stolen organs. See Vincent Price, Christopher Lee, and Peter Cushing, three masters of the macabre in Scream and Scream Again in color. Rated M. Edgar Allan Poe wrote Spirits of the Dead with a pen dipped in warm blood. You will see the ultimate in terror with this important all-star cast. Brigitte Bardot, Alain Delon, Jane Fonda, Terence Stamp, and Peter Fonda in Edgar Allan Poe's Spirits of the Dead. Only Poe's demented genius could bring to the screen such horror and evil. Spirits of the Dead stars Brigitte Bardot, Alain Delon, Jane Fonda, Terence Stamp, and Peter Fonda. Directed by three masters of the cinema, Federico Fellini, Louis Malle, and Roger Vadim. Spirits of the Dead is an adventure in terror beyond your wildest nightmares. Spirits of the Dead in color is rated R. Speaking of bisexuals... <laughs> <laughs> okay, then this isn't actually a real thing, but I can't wait to see where this is headed. I always sort of wished that Peter Cushing and Vincent Price would date, and they never did because Peter Cushing, as far as I'm aware, was not at all bisexual. No, but in Madhouse, and this is my transition here, that we're just going to really go with it. I really want to see where it goes. <laughs> we're going to go with it. Let's go with it. 
In Madhouse, they have this kind of relationship where it seems like a lover's quarrel. I don't pick up on that. Like, there's tension between their two characters in a way that feels I think you're reading into that something you really wanted to see. Okay, that's fine. (laughs) I'm not not denying that. It's definitely professional rivalry, we'll say that. It feels more personal than professional rivalry. I suppose. I mean, I I don't read it personally because... This also won't make any fucking sense if you haven't seen the movie, but there's a wife... Who's we're discussing sort of we're middle? discussing the movie Madhouse, yes. starring Vincent Price and Peter Cushing. Yes, and, and it, fucking Robert Quarry. And, so yes, <laughs> back so to I take actually, more abuse from Vincent Price. I think this is where they got into their little tiff that you discussed on the last episode because there's a karaoke scene in this yes, movie. Yes, this is definitely the movie where they got into that. But this is um, this was made a year after, two years after, one year after, one year after Theater of Blood. So it's. A very different film because it's kind of darker and he, Vincent Price, is basically dressed up as King Diamond. <laughs> I didn't think, <laughs> I didn't think of it that way, but he kind of is. And so he plays, um, a, I don't want to say character actor. He plays a horror movie villain known as Dr. Death. Paul Toombs. Paul Toombs, who has starred in a series of what were basically slasher films, although there isn't a word for that yet. Yeah. He's kind of like Coffin Joe. He's kind of like an early slasher. He totally is. It's almost like a British version of Coffin Joe, where yeah. it's this series of films that I wish were real, where... Well, so the great thing about them is they use clips from other Price movies, because this yes. is an AIP movie. Which is wonderful. But it, to me, like, before we really get into Madhouse, this is sort of the last, like, great double feature of his career yes i mean after this it was just kind of like one-off roles and diminishing returns and smaller and smaller yeah and it's like right after this he's in alice cooper's welcome to my nightmare he's in stuff like fairy tale theater which i'm obsessed with he's in monster club which Which is great but he has i don't agree i I love it i think monster club is fine i think it's endearing but i don't think it's great i love it House of Long Shadows, on the other hand. I'm not going to disagree with that one. Pete Walker's last movie. If you've never seen House of Long Shadows, which somehow it seems like no one has heard of this movie, and I think part of that is because it was unavailable for so long, but it's Peter Cushing, Vincent Price, Christopher Lee, Basil Rathbone. No, 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 no. I'm sorry. Not Basil Rathbone. Um, John Carradine. Everybody is in this but movie. But it's like every person is in it, and it's more or less an old dark house movie, so they're kind of all trapped in the same set for the whole film, but it's fucking amazing. And so it's like, yeah, he, he does have some great stuff, or some, some very endearing, likable stuff after this, but... Thriller. Sure. <laughs> I think that's unfortunately where most people... Scissor hands. See, I like him in that because it was a role written specifically for him. But like, yeah, when people only know him from Thriller and Edward Scissorhands, I'm always just like, It makes me sad. Um, But so there is a movie that I don't know if you've seen, but I have not. And I'm dying to... So it's... it's, Sorry, it's not a movie. It's it's like a, a TV serial. I'm dying to find a copy. I don't think it's available on the internet. The Horrible House of... 
Doctor. Well, the oh, I'm thinking of the comedy Canadian show he did in the 70s. Oh, which is great. Yeah, that I love, and that you could definitely find on the internet. But it's called Time Express. I'm not even familiar with and this. It's it's sort of like a cross between the Twilight Zone and Quantum Leap, and Vincent Price is in it. Does he? It, who is Al in this movie? I guess she, show. Sorry, I haven't seen it, so I don't know. But it must be Vincent Price. But it's basically set on a train, so it's also kind of like Night Train to Terror. I, I was waiting for you to go there. Night Train to Terror meets Quantum Leap. Come on and dance with me. Dance with me. It's Vincent Price just singing "Come on and dance with me" over and over again. Uh, there, it's so it's basically like the way the Twilight Zone tells individual stories. It's all the passengers on this train are taken back to different points in their lives. So they it hop really through is night time. Train to terror. It's Night Train to Terror meets Quantum Leap. Holy shit. I need to find it. So if you are listening and you have a copy of Time Express. <laughs> One of our, you know, 50 get in touch with me. or less fans. One of our six fans. I was going to say, we have a bit of a following on Facebook. It's not quite 100 yet, but the regulars. Yes. Basically you, Ian. Yeah, Ian, if you can find a copy of Time Express. <laughs> so Madhouse, anyway, Paul Toombs. Anyway, Madhouse. He is making his fifth Doctor Death film. Yeah, which, so hear me out. We we were talking about Price-tober, and we were supposed to do this in October. And in oct- It still is October. Oh, yes, I'm sorry. It's still October. So this October... <laughs> I was trying to watch a bunch of movies all set during Halloween, which is not as easy as you would think. No. But... Did you watch The Clown Murders? No. It Don't. No one watched that movie. It's boring as hell. Okay. I don't know why I brought that up. (laughs) Things not to do this October. Uh, Madhouse totally counts as a Halloween film. It is? Because the opening of the film is set during a Halloween party where everyone is in costume and they're all hanging out watching horror movies and then someone gets murdered. But who did the murder? That's the question. Well, it must be Dr. Death, right? So we open the movie with Dr. Death preparing for his fifth film. He is marrying his co-star in the film, a young, blonde, attractive woman. Oh, yes, Ellen who, let's just say she has an interesting background. She's a We've, porn actress. I was gonna. I was trying to phrase that politely. Robert Quarry is a scumbag. Do we have to be polite on this podcast? Robert Quarry is a scumbag in this movie. He's a pornographer. He is a smut peddler. And to well, get back at Vincent Price for yeah, some reason. I think he's like sort of a cross between, he's like a former pornographer turned producer, which is why he's even in the same orbit as right. Dr. Death. But again, as with the second Fives film, he's kind of a rival in this movie where he's, he isn't as much a rival as he is in the Fives movie, but he's oh, I think definitely he's just as much a poking rival. and prodding. And he reveals Toombs' new wife's former profession, which sets Toombs off because he is a man of the era who would feel slighted for something as yes, stupid I don't, as that. I don't want to marry some woman who has had sex before. But to his credit, so they... they He does have a great line where he's like, I think I must see all of your films now. (laughs) It is a good one. But to his credit, so they get into this fight. He's an asshole. She's very upset. But then like 10 minutes later, he realizes I was a fucking asshole. I actually love this woman. I don't care about her past. And he goes to apologize. Yes. Unfortunately, (laughs) he falls asleep 
and someone murders his wife. But so this so is So is it Price? Is it Tombs? Is it Robert Quarry's character who makes pornography for art house art houses? I think that's the line. Adult films for art houses. So yes. <laughs> is it any of the other people in his orbit? And we don't know. We actually, and I think one of the great things about Madhouse is that it takes the sort of opposite tact that Fibes and Theater of Blood takes where you know who the killer is right away. You think you know who the killer is. Yeah, but in this film, you really don't. Well, so they set it up to make it look like Tombs is the killer right from the get-go. And even um, He's Tombs himself insane. believes it. Yes, but... He thinks that, so he he knows he didn't kill her, or he doesn't remember killing her, but, but he, he believes he, he's insane, he so believes he must He believes he is have. capable of it, yes. Yes, and... So then he is committed oh, for no, a brief no, but period. Wait, but wait, the opening murder has one of my favorite, like, slasher movie tropes. Which is? Which is, and this shows up in everything. I just watched something... Uh, the girls night out no no no, no. the hol- the thanksgiving movie that we just watched blood rage thank you blood rage has it there's uh, an episode of buffy the vampire slayer that has it like, what, where like a head rolls off where someone is killed they're murdered sitting upright in a chair yes and when they're disturbed either and by disturbed i mean when someone tries to move them or talk to them and touches the chair Either their head rolls off or you learn that they're dead in some way. I love it so much and I don't know why. I just like the uh, how you position it to make it look like they're still alive, especially if you've cut the head off. How do you put the head on where it just stays there? Okay, so it, that's actually not possible unless you use some kind of epoxy. Like the head wouldn't stay. Have you tried this before? No, but I used to work in a morgue. I know the way that like dead limbs and organs rest on each other you just seem so sure of it i was like damn yeah i mean maybe some serial killer somewhere is listening to this right now and is like listen bitch i've done it (laughs) (laughs) but i'm 90 percent sure that it wouldn't work that way unless you i'm not saying it would i'm just like how do you do that and like obviously i know there's a suspension of disbelief in this but at the same time i'd like to think someone has done that before in real life some, I, like, I would police, hope so. Police have busted in on some serial killer, some Jeffrey Dahmer looking motherfucker, and there's a body sitting there and they turn it around and the head just rolls off. And like the most manly mustachioed detective is like, oh my God. That, I'd like to think that happened in real life. That seems like way more of a BTK move than Dahmer. I mean, yeah, Dahmer would have just eaten them, but like. Or would have dealt with them in a more respectful way. I feel like. I don't think there's a respectful way to deal with anything as if you're a serial killer because fundamentally you are killing people sure but i think there are certain serial killers who felt bad they were doing it and there were other serial killers who intentionally who hated the people they killed and like boston strangler and would do things that intentionally debased the dead bodies you also had mournful regretful ones at kemper who expressed regret called the police but he also defiled things yeah, but there's a way to defy. Why am I defending serial killers? I yeah, that's what I'm trying to understand. I'm saying there's no good way to be a serial killer. There's so, no polite way of handling a body. Okay, so I will agree with you there. I guess what I'm trying to say is 
certain serial killers intentionally make the crime scene extra horrible yes, to I, humiliate yes. the victim yes, yes, and to antagonize the police. So when I said a more polite way, I meant <laughs> there are people who try to hide the remains or there are definitely some serial killers who bury or at least cover or reclothe their victims. Yes. How did we get on this? <laughs> what I'm saying Let's is right all serial killers this. are bad. That is my policy. Well, yeah, I think we can agree on that one. There we go. We found a middle ground. <laughs> so the head rolls off the body. It's Paul been a long Toombs, week. Paul Toombs has been committed for, I think, roughly like three or four years, something like yeah. that. He gets out and a young actress, Elizabeth Peters, who starred in a, a young actress named uh, Elizabeth Peters. Played by Linda Hayden. Yes. Played by Linda Hayden from Blood on Satan's Claw. And she's amazing. Tries to blackmail Toombs into working with her. Yeah, which like, the first thing I would think of as a young actress is I want to find the guy who murdered his last co-star and star in a movie with him. Yeah, but the world is full of crazy bitches. I mean, if we're gonna, <laughs> if we're gonna get back. This to... episode is just going off the rails. But if you're gonna think about, well, like we were just talking about serial killers, think about all the insane people who write serial killers love letters and marry them. Ted Bundy had a kid in prison. So she's definitely that sort of like i just want publicity and i'm gonna do the craziest thing i can to get it but that's also where we meet peter cushing as tombs's best friend no you meet peter cushing in the beginning he's in the beginning but you don't really get to know him here's where you get to like actually he's formally introduced you learn more about him as a character that's fair and you also i think learn that there there's a a relationship Yes. yes Um, he sits Price down. He invites him to his cottage, whatever this is. Uh, yes, he does. So Flay is because a former actor. bisexual who... lovers. <laughs> they're not really in this film. Don't listen to me. Flay is a former actor who went behind the camera and is now a director. Behind the camera? <laughs> Everything I'm going to say now, it's just going to be this, I swear. I'm sorry. So he invites Tombs to his cottage um tombs is there and flay puts on a film for him showing him i guess an old dr death film it's not pornography unfortunately (laughs) it's not a stag film and this hypnotizes tombs as a hammer-esque kind of movie plays it's very like violent i forget which actual price movie this is i honestly don't remember so anytime they play anytime they play a clip from um a tombs movie from one of the dr death movies it's actually like a real vincent price movie like pit in the pendulum or yeah because as one of a number of other movies he started for aip yeah because as you said and we talked about this in the last episode but during this period in vincent price's career he worked exclusively for aip who did all of these uh co-productions with british amalgamated and So he's in all these really interesting British horror movies, but really they're also American horror movies because AIP owned them. Yes. Um, But in the course of watching this, young Elizabeth Peters, this actress, shows up because Flay maybe invited her? No, because she's a fucking stalker. (laughs) And Dr. Death, a personality, not a character in a movie, Dr. Death appears and murders her. Yes. And we also, at this point, point meet Faye, who is one of my favorite characters in the film who's wild man so this like if if Faye for Flay. some reason my speaking of bi if my bipolar disorder ever gets the better <laughs> of me i'm gonna turn into Faye. 
Faye is this like crazy goth lady. Oh wait, so this movie is goth. So okay. do you think the name was a play on Faye uh Faye Ray? I don't think so. Faye Flay? Her, well, her name is Faye Carsters. But she's the wife of Well Isn't she the wife of she Herbert Flay? She is. So I figured at some point, like, she became well, Faye Well, okay. So we should explain who she is first. So first of all, she's played by Adrian Corey, who's an amazing Hammer actress. And she's in some of the more non-traditional Hammer films, like Vampire Circus. She's great in. But she... So the way that they connect all of this together is so, you know, Paul Toombs is Dr. Death. Herbert Flay is the screenwriter for all those movies. And Faye was the lead act. She's supposed to be like the Barbara Steele type of character. She's the lead actress in all the Dr. Death movies. But but she just went a little crazy. A little crazy. She's insane. And she just, so she lives in this. I was being polite. (laughs) Thank you. You're being very polite this episode, possibly to make up for me. (laughs) But (laughs) she has this like, gothed out victorian living room that's just like covered in her pet tarantulas like legit this is gonna be me if my mental illness ever really like takes over because i have had pet tarantulas just not that many at once yes that scene is a bit much because up until that point the movie is kind of like a normal slasher film and then it takes a weird detour where you just have this woman in a dungeon this woman with like no hair by the way because I guess her hair fell out or... They don't explain it. Yeah. So she's just this weird lady who is... Nuts. Nuts. And was at one point married to Flay. I don't know if they still are. There's a weird relationship yeah, between them they, at this point. So they There's definitely of, distance. They kind of give you this idea. And one of the things I do like about this movie is that it doesn't beat you over the head with exposition. But... They give you this idea that maybe she went crazy because she was in love with Tombs and he rejected her and she sort of She wasn't marries, She marries Herbert. Yeah, her boobs are too small. She marries <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> she marries Herbert sort of as a like sad plan B, although no one should ever consider marrying Peter Cushing sad because he's Peter Cushing. Those cheekbones. Yeah, and that slap. <laughs> sorry (laughs) i'm not sorry but continue so it's basically the plot of the movie is he tries tombs tries to revive his career and he's encouraged by a number of people but he's also hampered by the fact that dr death keeps murdering people and we're never quite sure is it really tombs or is it someone else well you sort of reach a point in the film where you realize when doctor there's this um, one of the best scenes in the film he's in a television studio about to give an interview and the interview is interrupted oh yes much later in the film yes and we shouldn't say why i was gonna say let's save that because that's in a little bit and there's a lot of cool stuff to talk about in that scene but peters dies sure and then we move on to another woman who dies and it has um so this is we get footage from the price karloff sorcerer duel from the raven oh yeah which is amazing <laughs> and so ridiculous i believe actually this might be the interview scene right yeah yeah it's so there's not a scene, that further along yeah. in the film so they're talking and someone asks him like 
I forget what the question is, but he said says why were all the women's why were all the women screaming? Because I made them scream. So that line is like one of the most like gothest things I can think of. <laughs> why were the women screaming? Because I made them scream. Yeah, and then right after that, somebody gets impaled with a fucking broadsword. They do. <laughs> they do. But so I, I feel like we shouldn't give away too much all of it because I really think that well, who gets, the actual killer is should be a surprise. We'll leave that up uh, in the air. But there's a lot of weird stuff that still goes on. So eventually um, Peter's Elizabeth Peter's parents pop up. Yes, that's even before the television interview. And they try yes. to blackmail him. They try to blackmail him because they had raised their daughter to become famous. Like everybody in this movie is horrible and it's amazing well that's sort of what it has in common with theater of blood is it and dr fives yeah it kind of puts a toe over that exploitation line because there's just so much emotional cruelty and for most of the film you don't know who the killer is unless you're smarter than me or more observant than me which i'm sure many of you are there's a scene earlier in the film where it's pretty clear who the killer is because of the way things unfold but I won't give it away. Sure. But even at the points where you think, okay, Toombs is a fucking nut job and he's the killer, you feel so bad for him. Like, yes. He is a very tragic character. This is far more sympathetic than Fibes and definitely way more sympathetic than Theater of Blood. He's So he has the scene early in the film where he's with his wife and he kind of scolds her because of her previous career. We are kind of like, okay, you're a dick, dude. But then he expresses remorse and throughout the film, he's just kind of like things just keep getting worse and worse and worse for him. Yeah. And the film makes it very clear that he's traumatized by his fiance. I don't think they were were actually married, but his fiance's death. Yes. Um, um, so this is so this is where we get to the actual interview scene on a Dick Cavett style interview show. And I want to play um, a clip of Vincent Price describing the appeal of horror movies, because it's amazing. Well, they're impulses that we don't dare admit. Impulses that sometimes we don't even know we have. Animal cruelty, brutal violence, and bloodlust. They're tamed and uh, caged. Sometimes they prowl around inside of the cages that we've built for them. And, and then there comes a time and in between our sleeping and our waking when they whisper to us that they want to be set free, but, well, we don't set them free. I think maybe that's why the pictures are successful, because they do set them free. So as a callback to a previous episode, they use a clip of House of Usher during this scene. Oh, yes. Which I thought was hilarious, because... The Dr. Death character, so when you see him done up as Dr. Death, he looks like King Diamond, like a proto-King Diamond with, like, the black and white face paint. But you never see him wearing that makeup in any of the movies. The closest he comes is Pit, Pit and the Pendulum because he's wearing the um, the black face mask. Well, the, yes. the headgear with the face cut out. Uh, but then you get House of Usher where he's just, like, blonde Vincent Price. Yeah, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And no. I I really wish that, A, these Dr. Death films existed, but that they had also shot, like, fake movie scenes. Yes, I think it would have been more fun, but I think they were also having fun with, like, Vincent Price, the character, as much as 
he was playing himself to an extent in this movie. Sure. And you also have to consider that this is one of the very last AIP horror films. So they're really kind of like the director of the film, this guy, Jim Clark, barely worked as a director. He was mostly an editor. I saw I Worked on Day of the Locust, Marathon Man, The Killing Fields, all kinds of new Hollywood films. Sure, but I think at this point, they were on the sort of final fumes of their horror production, and yes. which is why, you know, we have Robert Quarry involved in the Five sequel and Madhouse, because they're also trying to turn him into a star right at this time with Count Yorga and its sequel. Yep. And it just was the end. Like by 1975, AIP was done making horror films. And so there are certain things about this where you do get that sense, like the fact that they're just reusing these clips because they have them. But on a side note, have you ever read this book? No. So it's based on this books? book. Books? Who reads books? Don't make me cut you. It's based <laughs> on this book called Devil Day which I've always wanted to read, but it's like super out of print and really expensive. So if anyone has a copy of Devil Day... Send that to Sam. <laughs> send that to us. So I guess we I'll won't let you spoil in. the full ending, but we will no. say Tombs goes down in fire much as Lionheart goes down in fire, although this time it's self-immolation. Yes. And we'll leave it there because the ending is a surprise. One that you can kind of pick up on. But one that's still, the way it unfolds is very awesome, particularly because of the way a character tries to imitate Vincent Price. Oh, it's so good. It's ridiculous, but it's good. But, and when you, so when you finally, if you haven't seen the film, when you finally see that imitation sequence and you make it all the way to the end, maybe you'll understand my fantasy that I talked about earlier, which I'm not going to further explain. I wish I could make a bye pun right here. <laughs> by the way. <laughs> but wait, wait. Actually, by the way, have, have you have you ever seen the 80s film Frightmare? Not the Pete Walker Frightmare? You mean the uh, Video Nasty Frightmare? Yes. Yes. So I saw that for the first time like a year or so ago. I don't know how it had I had never seen it before. It's I mean, fucking nuts. I love the Pete Walker Frightmare, so I think I just assumed, oh, I've already seen this movie because of the name. But I feel like the horror movie star who, you know, comes back from the dead and murders everyone. Is this going where I think it's going? No, he reminds me so much of Dr. Death. Oh, I thought you were going to say he was like the love child of Vincent Price and Peter Cushing or something. Oh, we could go with that, but no. <sighs> Really, I think he he's like a because that film was made ten years after this one. Yeah, and I it, could see it being influenced by this. Yeah, it it almost seems like sort of a sequel, like a much bloodier sequel, a totally unofficial bloodier sequel. Like, okay, so what happens if Paul Toombs is killed, <laughs> and all of these fucking kids go and try to see his corpse? He's gonna murder you, <laughs> as you do when you're a dead actor looking for revenge. As you do. Evening by your side, I learned to love 
But the loveliness of the night is no longer the same. When day is done and shadows fall, I dream of you. When day is done, I think of all the joys we knew. So that was Madhouse, and that was Theater of Blood. For anyone who has listened to a previous episode, and I'm hoping there are a few of you left, we also talk about music. But again, since we are stuck in the 70s, it's a little difficult, so we're stretching the idea of what is and isn't goth to talk about what we feel were goth precursors. And also to talk maybe about what is a phrase that I have not used yet in this episode. Don't shake your head at me. I am going to ban this phrase. (laughs) Goth adjacent? I'm going to ban it. Not just from this podcast, but from life. I'm going to ban you. Why is everything adjacent all of a sudden? You are canceled. You are either something or you are not something. You're not in the proximity of something. Okay, well, these two records that we're talking about are, in fact, in the proximity of goth music, and they're not actually goth music, so eat it. Okay, so what is goth adjacent? Sam, for you. For me? And, okay, I don't so, mean you have to describe what it means. No, I, just I mean, know. I'm yes. going to talk about the album. I'm not I don't that much of a hear, moron. I don't want to hear the word as much as you would have to use it in that circumstance. I only used it once in this episode. Keep your shirt on. So, like you said, it's been a little tricky with these last few episodes because I feel like we just keep talking about 72, 73, 74, and there are only so many albums that really qualify and one of the things we haven't talked about yet is one of my favorite albums of all time which is uh leonard cohen's 1974 album new skin for the old ceremony fantastic record it's i don't like it's not a goth album but it totally was influential I mean, I'll give Leonard Cohen credit in the sense that I believe that Sisters of Mercy took their name from one of his songs. They for sure did. Don't know if that's true, but in my mind, it is. They for sure did. I will fight Andrew Eldridge if he says otherwise. (laughs) I don't care if it's his band. I'll still fight him. We're still waiting on that record, Andrew. And I could totally take him. But. Probably. Please. He weighs as much as like my arm. (laughs) So why don't you talk about Leonard Cohen? So. I've been thinking about him a lot this week because the anniversary of his death just came up, which is always very sad. And he was one of the few celebrities who, like, I was genuinely very upset when he passed. And this record in particular, I think, has such a really interesting range of songs and lyrical themes. I mean, you also have something like, and I may have mentioned this on a past episode, but you have something like Who by Fire on this album, which Coil covered, and Coil, I would say, are also goth adjacent. Who by very slow decay and who 
shall I say is calling? I would classify them as full goth. You think? Really? I would. I, I mean, mean I cover, have a coil tattoo and I'm goth. Their so. cover of Tainted Love is definitely very gothy. Like, it was something that definitely helped. Yeah, they sorry, helped Mark establish. Allen, more goth than the original. Well, that wasn't the original. They were both covers. Oh, that's right. I always have, like, totally <laughs> blocked that out of my mind. Yeah, I think it was a Soul Song, wasn't it? Yes. Yes. Um, I will disagree. I prefer um, Soft Cells. But. <gasps> I prefer Soft Cell as a band. <gasps> what? Sorry. I mean, I don't get me wrong. I absolutely love Nonstop Erotic Cabaret. Is oh one my of god, records. it's one of the greatest records. But of yes, all time. to the point about Coil, I think they're definitely like they established a whole subsection of dark electronic music that is very prominent in goth music. They did an unreleased soundtrack for Hellraiser, so it's like, come on, they're all goth. right. But I feel like they're their so later much stuff. So more... like Love Secret Domain, I. Uh, wouldn't yeah. classify as goth. Yeah, but that's, that's when like, they started kind of transitioning into world influences. And... But that's like really just one album. Well, I mean, yeah, but I meant like that's where they started moving out of that anyway. Like that was kind of techno. No, but I think they moved back into the sort of okay. neo folk stuff that you're like industrial stuff you're talking yeah. about. It was just post industrial, like, whatever you want to call it. Domain. They were doing way too many fucking drug it's I mean, also a wonderful record it is but i think it became sort of more electronic they were into a very particular club scene yes and so they sort of moved out of their signature sound and went on to develop a different sound that sort of was closer to where they started like very very dark we were talking about leonard cohen were we <laughs> we were <laughs> and we get on the coil <laughs> well so i think leonard cohen was a huge influence on coil as he was Likely, on a yes. lot of other people but Anyone who mattered. Anyone who mattered. And Leonard Cohen, to me, is one of the original goths because so many of his songs... Sad Bastard songs? No, see, to me, it's not Sad Bastard music. Sad Bastard music is when, like, you don't actually have anything to cry about, but you just fucking cry because you're a baby. Leonard Cohen had a lot to be sad about. That is true. He had a lot to actually be sad about. And there is this really fascinating article and if you email me i can send you the link or maybe we could put it in the we can post it yeah we could we could post it on the facebook page but there's this really great album review well i guess it's it's like a multi-album review but it sort of talks about how leonard cohen songs are jewish songs and this might not make a whole lot of sense until you read the full thing but it sort of talks about how his view of suffering and his view of living in the world as constant suffering is specifically a Jewish view. And I'm not Jewish. I, you know, I'm not religious in a traditional Judeo-Christian sense, but culturally and historically, the article is super fascinating and it talks a lot about his literary influences and He's very goth, I think. Even if the songs that you hear at first, you're like, why is this guy playing a fucking acoustic guitar? This isn't goth. But when you <laughs> when you listen to the actual words, he is a really amazing poet, and he's goth. The end. <laughs> okay. That's quite the act to follow. Um, Sorry. I didn't take the serious approach, although this album is serious in some ways. Um, I 
decided to go more for the performance aspect. Well, sure. I wouldn't have been as serious if I hadn't spent the last couple days thinking about the fact that he died. Right. Um, so when I was looking up albums for this era, there were there was a bunch of stuff I wanted to look over. And then I did the stupid thing of looking on the internet to see what people in goth forums actually think oh, of these artists. Oh, no. So one of the first ones I looked at was Alice Cooper, and people were like, he's not goth at all. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Well, and I was like, so his performance aspects influenced a whole number of different artists, the image and all of that. He had giant spider webs and grown women dressed as spiders and Vincent Price. And like, how can you say that Alice Cooper isn't goth? So this got me looking for other music. He wrote a fucking song about Dwight Fry and Dracula. (laughs) Jesus Christ. So I was like, okay, what else can I find? Sorry, that wasn't yelling at you. I stumbled onto this record. It's uh, an artist I had listened to a lot of in the past. Um, Arthur Brown, his band Kingdom Come, who were an instrumental act in a number of re- for a number of reasons, but mainly for the performance element because he was known as the god of hellfire. He incorporated fire, and visually, he was doing things very similar to Cooper with uh, the way he presented himself visually. So the record I decided to pick, uh, since this was 73, was Journey, which was a turning point for the band because this record is monumental in a number of different ways, but most important because it was the first appearance of an electronic drum machine on a record. So Really? Allegedly. This is what I found in doing research on the record. I've listened to this record before, and I couldn't think of anything else before that other than like overt electronic music. So I think they mean for like a live band. Okay. Uh, because clearly there were electronic artists using things like this previously. And you can hear it in songs on this record. Um, Gypsy is a proto-goth song. And on other songs, so for example, the bass lines on Conception specifically uh, remind me of a lot of what was happening in the late 70s a few years later. Um, they're reminiscent of the dub influences on Bauhaus's records as you get later into their career. And even some non-goth, but goth-adjacent music. Yay! Like Public Image Limited, specifically uh, Jaw Wobble's work with uh, the band on Metal Box.
Yeah, I feel like he's one, and I definitely know less about him than you do, but I feel like to me, he's one of those people who belongs in that sort of early Genesis, Peter Gabriel, King Crimson kind yes. of. It was very proggy. Yes, proggy, but lots of experimental performance work. Which would definitely have an influence on artists even just a few years later. Yeah. So like I was saying before, stuff with Bauhaus, you can definitely hear dub influences, which is really weird because I don't think reggae had quite filtered into the British consciousness at that point, had it? I know like the movies had started coming over and the music, the dance hall stuff had started in the late 60s, but it wasn't as big yet. Well, so it's it's interesting that you bring this up because this is also something I've randomly been thinking about this week because for an unrelated project that... I can't really talk about because it hasn't been announced yet. I've been thinking a lot about Serge Gainsbourg this week. And if you don't... Are we going to be talking about lemon incest? I hope so. (laughs) If you don't know anything about Serge Gainsbourg, and I know that he's not super familiar to a lot of Americans, he's the single probably most important musician in... France. France. Yes. And... If you had to draw a parallel, I've heard people describe him as like the French David Bowie, but I really think he's more like the French Prince. What about the French David Hasselhoff? He's definitely not the French (laughs) David Hasselhoff. He's like a cross between the French David Bowie and the French Prince because he wrote a ton of songs early in his career for other people, the way that Prince, you know, has all this stuff that people don't even realize is Prince material. But... He was one of the first people to bring, and I swear I'm tying this back, but he was one of the first people to bring reggae into pop music. And he basically went to the islands and said, like, I'm really interested in this kind of music. Like, I want to meet some producers. And they basically said, go fuck yourself. And because he's Serge Gainsbourg and just smoked all of the pot, (laughs) I think they realized, oh, you're not just some, like, executive asshole. You're legit. Yeah. And it's sort of fascinating to me. Like he did this reggae cover of the Marseillaise, Mm -hmm. which horrified like the French sort of mainstream culture police who were just like outraged that somebody would take what they thought of as black music and do this traditional French song, like the most traditional French song. And so it's, I think they sort of developed in parallel to each other. And I just think it's really interesting that that sort of happened at the same time. Yeah. And you wouldn't start seeing more of that influence in, I don't want to call it white music, but music made by white artists, yeah. specifically punk and then later new wave where it was very prominent as a part of both the culture and the sound. You can't have new wave if you don't have reggae specifically. Yeah. So that grew out of a much more natural interaction between um, working class people in England at that time who were adopting cultures that they were around. Whereas I don't know if it was intentional here, but you can hear some of like, I don't know if Arthur Brown was even aware of it. I don't know enough about him, but you can kind of hear the early stages of that creeping into goth music. And it's interesting because when people talk about goth music, they don't really talk about like a dub influence. But if you listen to Bauhaus, you can't not talk about it. It's there up front. They've named songs like In Fear of Dub. They did dub alternate covers of their songs. Yeah. So like the idea, um, that's one of the reasons. So 
one of the reasons why I love talking about like goth music and early goth music is it was much more diverse than people give it credit for, especially where the ideas were coming from. Yeah, and I think that's why it's so interesting to talk about because people, I think, have this idea that it's like white people crybaby music, which... Well, it's also the idea that it's... Like the Smiths nostal- is white people crybaby music. Yes. But also the idea that it's like nostalgic for the Victorian era or something like a time before people of color or other things were happening culturally. Sure, but that's not really what it is. I mean, if you think about just, you know, some of the stuff you've mentioned on even like a music theory level, it that definitely isn't true. But also politically, I mean there's so much going on in early goth music like it's often very political even when it seems to not be i mean even if you just think about Susie and the banshees there's so much going on with the sexual politics in their music and i think that's also true of cocteau twins in a slightly different way well and it was fiercely confrontational so much of it to the to the extent that occasionally bands would go too far Susie with the swastika yeah where like the intention was to shock by adopting the iconography and imagery death in june the bands and not the bands the to adopt the iconography and imagery of things that would offend a prior generation so because a prior generation fought in world war ii it was adopted specifically to attack them and obviously it wasn't necessarily the right thing to do but it was something that was like it was a political statement at the time. Yeah, but if you also understand all of that, in a way, I think it was a useful statement at the time because right. you're talking about the children of people who were World War II vets and who grew up with this veneration of the British military and the British yes. Air Force. And there's this sort of propriety and everything has to be a certain way that I think those particular children who went on to form the goth bands we're talking about saw as just the most blatant hypocrisy. I mean, a lot of them were victims of childhood sexual abuse, saw a lot of domestic abuse in their families. And it wasn't that they hated the military. It was that they're reacting against these very sort of proscriptive social values. Yes. Which is why I get all crazy when everyone's like, oh, Death in June, they're blah, blah, blah. But it's the same thing with Susie or the same thing with like (laughs) Coil. You could also make a case in a different way. They are problematic adjacent. No, they're just flat out problematic. I don't know if Coil is specifically. Death in June is. uh, So I recently heard the most ridiculous thing. Okay, so if you ever want like. This is going to be the extra long episode. If you ever want to waste an afternoon of your life. Go on the Coil Facebook group, which has some of the most... Don't go on any band's Facebook group ever. No, but also both of the members, the the original members are deceased. So it's not like it's their actual group. It's right. a bunch of people obsessed with Coil. And oh, I just meant don't ever like become involved in a fan community. It's always the worst. Oh, yeah. But so recently someone posted, and people always post the fucking dumbest questions in this Coil group. <laughs> it's like, it's like, were Coil really that gay? What? <laughs> like, like what? I can't even with with that. And we'll have another episode where we It'll talk have about... It'll the Hellraiser episode. Yes, we'll talk Specifically about... Specifically the influences that they were trading back and forth, we'll which t- were very gay. Yeah, so we'll talk about Hellraiser and Coil sometime soon, so I'm not going to go into that now, but... A recent question was, were, was 
someone told me a friend who is feminist told me that coil are really misogynistic is that true and on what grounds because they don't talk about women I wouldn't expect two openly gay men to... who are extremely political and extremely involved in the gay scene at the time because in all of their friends yeah. are dying of AIDS. I mean, that's what the song Tainted Love, like their appropriation of it was about. Both yeah. them and uh, Mark Allman, Soft Cell, yeah. who they're very close friends with. Yes. But yeah, so it's this sort of nonsense where it's like goth culture at least initially, is pretty left-wing and pretty political and very into reacting against this sort of conservative conventional morality. Well, so... Also, I I don't even know how we got here. I know a lot of people (laughs) say... Dr. Fives. Like, goth and punk specifically were very left-wing. In some sense, I definitely agree with that. But I think think it's... I don't think... I don't know if it's always appropriate to project um, like the intention of an ideology, especially very early on. A lot of people who were coming into these movements were just really fucked up people looking for a place to exist alongside other people like themselves. And I think a political idea evolved out of that because it became something where they had to exist in opposition to something else. And so they're existing in opposition to what they saw as mainstream values. Yeah. um, There's a, beautiful essay by nick pinkerton about penelope spheris's films and he goes into this about the punk scene oh it's so good and it's a very good um summation of what i'm trying to say but he says much more intelligently where it there's definitely like obviously some political intention after a certain point but in the beginning it was just kind of angry and isolated yes angry and isolated people who Yes, some of them were probably angry middle class people, but a lot of them weren't. They came from really horrible backgrounds and they were trying to find other people like themselves just so they could live and not go crazy. So I think goth was definitely that to an extent. I think so, too. And Nick Pickerton is a very smart man. He is. And he has written one of the funniest people on Twitter. He is one of the greatest people on Twitter. But speaking of goth things he probably wrote the single best review of the John Rollin book that I edited. Oh, well, there you go. He's all over the place. I trust him because he likes good movies. And, and I, I will always trust someone who likes good movies. And because he's cantankerous as hell on Twitter. It's so good. Contrarians are sometimes right. Thank you. <laughs> okay, <laughs> let's go over the movies to see if they are actually goth so we can close this out before the two-hour mark. Oh, God. Um... Rule number one, embrace the darkness. Uh, theater of blood. I guess in the sense that like he's embracing Shakespeare and Shakespeare is kind of dark. Yeah. And Madhouse, definitely. Definitely. Madhouse, not Madhouse. Madhouse. <laughs> I don't know why I said it like that. Madhouse. <laughs> the very Pennsylvania water type thing going on right now. Yeah. Uh, rule number two, kill your fear. Lots of people get killed. Uh, but in Madhouse, he kills he does, his fear. He does confront his fear. Yes, he confronts his fear and he gets past it. We won't say how or why, but he does. Rule number three, live for death. I Dr. think that's death. true of both movies. Dr. Death. So Madhouse, Madhouse is definitely... <laughs> <laughs> Madhouse is definitely a goth movie. 
Yeah, Theater of Blood is not a goth movie. We'll, we'll say no, because at least one movie has to be not goth for this podcast to exist. I don't think that's true. Well, so not everything can be goth. I'm not someone who is like, everything must be for everyone. Like, things can be for very specific people for very specific reasons. Okay, like, I will... There have to be boundaries. Sure. I Like, I will fight you over the fact that you say Santa isn't real. Santa is totally Santa real, is not real, but Santa's not goth. Santa is not real. Santa is real. No, he's not. Yes, he is. Santa is a CIA conspiracy. He's a PSYOP. Think about it. A man in a faraway place enslaves a bunch of elves. He doesn't enslave them. They're happy to work. He has a book about who's naughty and nice. He's always watching. He's the big brother state. He isn't the big brother state. He's always watching us. He's deciding if we're naughty or nice. Excuse me. He's the ultimate voyeur. And... If you want to be punished, Santa is a representation of the surveillance state. He's a psyop. You're the craziest person I have ever met. Santa is not real because the CIA runs Santa. But End the CIA is real. I, I mean, I can't d- dispute that. They've done many horrible things in Latin America to prove that they're real. I was working in the lab late one night when my eyes beheld an eerie sight. For my monster from his slab began to rise, and suddenly, to my surprise, he did the monster mash. It was a graveyard smash. It caught on in a flash. Did the monster mash from my laboratory in the castle east to the master bedroom where the vampires feast? The ghouls all came from their humble abodes to catch a joke from my electrodes. They did the monster mash. It was a graveyard smash. It caught on in a flash. They did the monster match. The zombies were having fun. The party had just begun. The guests included Wolfman, Dracula, and his son. The scene was rocking, all were digging the sounds. Igor on chains, backed by his baying hounds. The coffin bangers were about to arrive with their vocal group, the Crypt Kicker Five. They played the monster mesh. It was a graveyard smash. Caught on in a flash. It made the monster mash. Out from his coffin, Drax's voice did ring. It seems he was troubled by just one thing. He opened the lid and shook his fist and said, Whatever happened to my Transylvanian twist? It's now the monster mash. It was a graveyard smash. It caught on in a flash. It's now the monster mash. Now everything's cool, Drax a part of the band. And my monster mash is the hit of the land. For you, the living, this mash was meant to. When you get to my door, tell them Vincent sent you. Now you can monster mash. It 
was a graveyard smash. It caught on in a flash. Now you can monster mash. Come now, my pretty. Do the monster mash. It won't hurt. I promise. <laughs> 